A lot of the fun of creation is the creation, and the hard work is all the maintenance and the support and the documentation after. Developers don't want to make companies. I think that a lot of developers don't know how. Open source infrastructure needs a developer evangelism team, <laughs> or it needs like it <laughs> yeah, needs yeah, like yeah. a community manager or, or something. Or a sales right? team. It's bad enough to get a snotty bug report from a customer that's paying you. Mm -hmm. But when it's from somebody who doesn't even give you anything. The problem I have with calling it free labor is that I find it a little bit condescending to the intelligence of software developers. In the end, money is actually really closely tied to open source, and we're just not talking about it. Everybody gets paid for open source. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harva, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. In this episode of To Be Continuous, Nadia Ekbal and Sean Burns join us to discuss the economics of open source. So Nadia, what do you like best about open source? I like that open source is where I feel I spend time with a lot of creative people. Um, it's sort of like creative talent at its best, and it feeds directly back into the rest of startups and technology and everything else that I love. Um, but it seems like everything starts with open source, which makes it really magical. So Sean, what do you like best about open source? It's the community. I, I enjoy learning from other people. I enjoy being able to find people I would never connect with that I have interests in common with, uh, and the community that helps, because I, I consider open source to extend beyond just writing lines of code to sharing ideas and sharing concepts and sharing solutions to problems. And while I might not always use those same solutions, I'm always inspired for new ways to solve other problems. So that's super interesting because nobody said that they like how it supports their Silicon Valley startup through sharecropping or. <laughs> uh, or Nobody said like I like how I get paid to work. <laughs> sure. Well, 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 it, well Paul, that comes later in the episode, but this would be a great time for our guests to introduce themselves. Yeah, I'm Nadia Ekbal. I've been writing recently and thinking a lot about how to support open source infrastructure. Originally, I have a background in nonprofits and impact investing and working with foundations. Um, but most recently, I was a founder of a startup, and then I went into venture capital and has sort of seen the system from all different sides and would love to marry together all those different interests and topics which seems to happen in open source. Hey, I'm Sean Burns. I've been writing software most of my life. Uh, I've also been a founder of, of companies and an investor. I have been lucky enough to, I, I would not consider myself an expert in open source and I don't want to claim that pedestal, but I have. Uh, I am the maintainer of some open source libraries which seem to be pretty popular and I have contributed to others. and. I think that I've been lucky enough to know a lot of open source developers in my life, which is by no means a majority of them, but enough that I feel uh, part of the community at least. So one of the one of the topics that we were discussing just before the show started is is this idea of how open source developers get paid, um, or if uh, open source developers should get paid. So Nadia, it sounds like you've been talking about this for a while or thinking about this for a while. Can you kick us yeah. off? Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, have a new thought on this topic from. Uh, Michael Rogers, who's who runs um, Node.js Foundation, and he said recently, I think on the last post I had written that everybody gets paid for open source, and I think that's a really great way to start thinking about it versus saying that nobody gets paid, um, because in the end we're contributing time to open source, right? And 
in the end, somebody is paying you to have the time to work on open source, whether it's your employer and then you can work on open source full time at your job, or you're, you know, you're full time employed and that gives you the bandwidth to be able to work on open source on the weekends or whatever. Um, so when I think about paying people to work on open source, I think people sort of like bristle at the idea because they think that money is not involved in open source at all. And what I really liked about Michael's point is that in the end, money is actually really closely tied to open source and we're just not talking about it. I, it's interesting because my point of view is that it's actually more nuanced. I, I agree with you 100%, but I think that it's very nuanced in that a lot of people do get paid for open source. It's not even that we aspire to wanting them to get paid, right? Because there's lots of kinds of open source. It's funny because on, on Medium, Nadia and I had a, an exchange and I kind of quantified it into the, the four categories of open source the way I see them, which is by no means the universal standard, but at least how I see the world. There, there are places where open source is part of your a corporate product. It's part of a whole, like you know, LaunchDarkly, Edith's company has open source SDKs. It's not because they're doing anything. Granted, it reduces their sales friction if their customers can see the code before they integrate it into their app, right? So that's one kind of open source. A second is what I call corporate open source, where there's an open source project, but there's a company that sells services and products and stuff around it, right? So Confluence does that for Kafka, and Databricks does that for Spark, and uh, MySQL was, I think, one of the first companies to really make a good model out of it. Red Hat, you could argue, had mixed success, but that's another kind where there's a company whose corporate goal and sales is towards this. This project. There's the, the third kind, which I call kind of like you know corporate marketing, which is you know you take a project out of a company and you you roll it out like LinkedIn did with Kafka, where they're actually the companies maintaining it. They just make it available. So Google with Angular and Facebook with React. And again, there I think that it's you know you could argue why companies do this. Some of them do it for recruiting. Some of them do it for marketing. Some of them do it because they're very nice people. Um, but there, I think that the fourth category is where it's a little bit weirder, where it's like what I call like the community where. Somebody started a project. Maybe it's an individual, maybe a few people to solve a problem. And a lot of the most important open source projects today started that way. Even Linux started that way, right? Where, and it grew and it got bigger. And eventually, then it became unclear because other people were using that project to build other companies and build other products and make more money. And I think in that fourth quarter category is where I think it's less, because in the first three categories, it's pretty, usually pretty clear who's getting paid to do what and where the money's coming from. But in the fourth category, it gets very muddied very quickly. Because if I start something, uh, and the metaphor I like to use is the open source library that I wrote was something called LikelyJS, which is a, a recommender system for Node.js, where you can, like Amazon product recommendations. And I know that there are people in the world that are using that as part of companies. And those companies are obviously making money because they're using it to recommend products, right? And so the question is, you know, so in that world, um, do they owe me anything for creating that, which is underlying their products? And then in turn, what do I owe to the product projects that I built Likely on top of? And then where does where does the flow of economics in that world go? So I, I have an interesting view on, on on that. Years ago, I got involved in this project called um, PHC, which was a, a compiler for PHP. And there was a couple of guys who had who had started this, and, and I joined a year later. And when they started it, they they made it GPL. When I joined, I argued we should change it from being GPL to BSD because if someone comes along and uses that technology. To build something that's cool, I would rather that happen than that not happen. And it might be that it, that if it was GPL, um, that 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 it wouldn't happen. And so that that essentially, in, in sort of the the kind of related to likely JS, you decided by the license mm-hmm. whether or not you were going to make it publicly available, or you know, mm-hmm. you you 
if you had made, if you didn't want people to build business on it, you could have made it GPL or, or AGPL or something along those lines, and, and you could have restricted it in, in any way that you wanted, and you chose not to. And there's something implicit in that that communicates to people who are building their companies on it, etc., as as to you know what your intent was. No, that's true. Although there's a nuance in there, which is that even the GPL suffers from this. What Richard Salmon still complains about today, which is you could still use likely JS on a server. Right, right, to produce right. a service. Without well, so AGPL a- a- would work around that. that, that sure, that's and, and there's other licenses that I could choose, but the majority of licenses out there today. But e- even then, let me argue the, the counterside, not because I agree with it, just because hey, let's argue because it's more interesting. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> you know, as an individual developer, I don't know the time or resources yeah. to go pursue. Like I don't, I'm not going to go sue somebody. Really, right. no. Come on, like it's not going to happen. So, I think you're right. Only in the act of releasing it as open source on GitHub. I was making a decision that it is possible for people to use this in ways that may I, either I, a I don't intend they could have used it on Silk Road to recommend drugs for all I know seriously right or to make money on it in ways that I am not going to benefit from and I made that decision knowing full well the the impact of that and I would actually argue most developers do that the question is whether or not there's like remorse later on when it turns out wait I really wish I hadn't made that decision and I can go back in time well, I think this is a common thing that that, that people. Create a thing, and then they say, "Well, you know, if this is popular, I could sort of keep it, or I could, I could, you know, th- th- there's value here that I could keep to myself, or I could keep the value to myself, um, or try to profit from it in some way." But they make what is essentially a marketing decision. I'm just going to release this. I'm going to see what happens to it. I'm going to see if it spreads, and then if it spreads, I can then make a decision as to as to what, you know, how possibly I can make um, I can make money out of this, or I can get value out of this, but. Yeah, at that point, obviously, the, the the cat is out of the bag in terms of in terms of people actually using the software. Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually you should start from the principle, like you said, of it's really great when people you you give something away and then people can use it for whatever they want, whether it's for a hobby project, whether it's for illegal drugs or whatever you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. businesses, whatever. Like it's that's like kind of one of the, the coolest things about open source is that you can use it for whatever you want, and that's part that's kind of what you signed up for, right? If you didn't want to do that, then don't license it that way. I don't know. I, I wouldn't frame at least the the problems that I'm seeing or that I'm interested in is not really about like seller's remorse. I guess of oh, I made this thing and now it's really popular and how can I make money off of it? But I think it's more really about investing back into the infrastructure that we're all using and that requires some sort of maintenance and upkeep. And that's why I, I like the term infrastructure and I'm trying mm. to use it in that sense of things that don't have a business model or a business attached to it. Like you literally could not charge for Python. Like there's just that's not going to happen, <laughs> um, or the packaging associated with it, or whatever. But still, like millions of people are using it. It's touched billions of people, um, and you literally have like one person working on a library or a project. That doesn't seem. It seems like it's in everyone's best interest to make sure that it works properly. Well, I think Nadia made a really good point that um, a lot of the fun of creation is the creation, and the hard work is all the maintenance and the support and the documentation after. So, like Sean, you basically got the fun. Oh, totally. And then you're, you need to like. Well, I mean, that, that's if you even think back to our, the original like Cathedral and Bazaar essay from years ago. I mean, that was one of the fundamental t- topics of, of you know, Eric was inheriting. I think it was called Popmail from oh, right, somebody yeah, else. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. he had gotten tired of maintaining it, and so he wanted somebody to take it over, and he found Eric, and Eric took it over. I mean, that's. You know, I think yes. As engineers, we like creating and and we like creating things in our free time, and we don't like maintaining them as much. And maintenance feels more like work. Um, and and so I agree with with Nadia's point that it it if everybody is driving economic value from it, somebody has to be willing to step forward to support it. I think the problem is that 
I also, it's funny that you have a background in nonprofits because I also <laughs> have worked for nonprofits and I see the similar lament in nonprofit companies, yeah. which is that, or not nonprofit companies, nonprofit organizations, where the person who starts it usually really wants to solve this problem. They're usually very good at that. They're not good at the fundraising. And in this mm. case, the nonprofits, right. it's like raising grant money or getting donations. But they, they have a good mission and they have a good organization to go do it. And they have this lament, which is why can they not get more support to solve the problem they see in the way that they want to solve it? Yeah. And I see the same Absolutely. around maintainers of open source projects. And I think the challenge is going to be that I wonder if it is even possible for the general economy to support them to do what they want to do the way they want to do it, or if they're going to have to start doing it the way the the general. Right, because they, yeah. they, they have other options. They can start a consulting company, or you, I think you can call it a Category yeah. Two company or something sure. like that to uh, to build around it and support it themselves that way. And then their job doesn't. Then their job isn't what they wanted their job to be, which is making cool software. Their job is, you know, doing maintenance contracts for um, for a big soulless enterprise. Wait, you say that like it's. I mean, soulless enterprises. I mean. I'm a big fan of soulless enterprises, <laughs> but I'm just looking to sort of put the they put have the a lot of money. On. Yeah, we yeah, yeah. to sell them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and if if any soulless enterprise would like to buy CircleCI, they should contact me for for enterprise <laughs> just pricing. Just mention the, the the code OSS for ten percent more on your contract. <laughs> and, and by the way, thank you for wearing your Launch Darkly T-shirt today, Paul. <laughs> Always. So. Nadia and Sean had had this conversation on, on on Twitter a week ago, which led to them being on the show. And and one of the one of the tweets that that, that got involved was from a Jacobian, who's one of the senior Python kind of people. And what he said is, OSS developers deserve to be paid. SV uh, Silicon Valley has made massive profits by exploiting free labor. This needs to end. And I think that that there is this. This feeling in open source, or at least by a lot of people who who end up on the maintenance side of things, that you know that, that there is a sort of a sharecropping going on here, and that something needs to happen about that. I think Nadia actually put this extremely well in in the essay. Like, a, cool, I wish I wish I had written that essay. It was brilliant. Um, <laughs> but just like what's really fed this is the explosion of GitHub, and that it's really easy now to start an open source project. Yeah, I feel like right now is just a time when we're so used to thinking of open source in a certain way and things have kind of gone along as they have for so long that we haven't necessarily noticed or taken a step back that like the past five years look completely different from the past 30 years. Mm. And stuff is just not the same anymore. And um, and in part, it's a really, well, I think it should be framed as a really good thing because it means that open source kind of won in a way. Um, like companies want things to be open source. They want to learn how to open source their own projects. They want to understand the whole thing. Um, everybody is defaulting to open source, and that's a really positive thing. And the question is more of you know, not like, oh, we're exploiting people and that really sucks, but how can we help support that underlying layer that has helped make everything so great? Um, it obviously needs some sort of reinvestment back into it. Yeah, I mean, one of the most fascinating things about the Cathedral in the Bazaar, which was written 30 years ago, is that they referred to Linus Torvald as this charming guy. Yeah, I know. Like, wow, he's this charming, personable guy who like persuaded people through sheer force of will to work on his project. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to go back to Sean's like example about a nonprofit, and everybody in the studio right now is like, whoa, that's not not at all <laughs> by, any, by anybody's perception of now. And I don't know whether that's just the grind down of having to keep maintaining a project, or <laughs> well, I, th- I would first I'd like to to thank I don't know if his name is actually Jacobian, but whatever it is, thank him for his service and and work on by Python because I think no matter what we agree on here, we can all agree that the people doing this are doing a service for the general community. Um, I think I, the problem I have with calling it free labor is that it, it's I find it a I think it's misleading 
And I secondly, I find it a little bit condescending to the intelligence of software developers that they're just being taken advantage of. Like they're somehow, you know, they have no choice. Like there actually is legitimate free labor being abused in the world. People who have no choice. They have economic limitations. They have no options. I think the reality in software development is that no matter where you work in the world, software developers are a highly paid profession. People who can make money doing this. Um, maybe more in Silicon Valley than elsewhere, but people can make make money doing it. And there, it, it is a challenging profession in that these people are, are smart and they understand the impacts of what they do. I think the question largely is, are I really do think it comes down to the fact that there are people who have done work that is now being used in other ways, and what is the rationale and the economic equality that they deserve for that? Right. So right, right. You know, you I think, think about I, some. So I sorry, I just want to go back. I mean, there's 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 equivalencies previously in history, right? It's not like this is the first time in in history that technology has been used in different ways, right? You looked at the ways that the telephone changed the economy and electricity changed things. I mean, these things fundamentally alter the way we we function, and they can be used in ways we didn't intend. And I think that you think to the original, all the original programming languages all came out of academic research, and then it was always going to be. I mean, university research has always been available to the public, so it was always, as Nadia said, back then it was obvious. Now we have companies like Go is developed by Google, right? So what does that mean? Does that mean that the world changed? Like Java was developed by Sun Microsystems. It worked out really well, but Java's never really been open source, right? So to take to take his point a little more, I don't I don't necessarily agree with with Jacobian's point here, but I, I think the 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 feeling that, that that he's trying to say is is that there's tons of these startups who are making millions and millions of dollars, and they're they're building it on the free. And I'm I'm making uh, quotation marks which you can't see, <laughs> um, but they were great actually, right? A good flourish, a <laughs> yeah. nice wrist snap. Um, companies are making millions of dollars on putting together, wrapping together open source libraries and open source technologies that, that are produced by people to whom they gave no money and to whom uh, they are sending bug reports and who are, uh, who are then shouldering the maintenance burden uh, all for free relative to the companies that are using them. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think a lot of open source was based on, I call it the take a penny, leave a penny model, right. where like um, <laughs> tipping. You know, like oh, I'll, I'll use this project, but I'm contributing I think it was back. Actually, to the take a penny, take a penny. Well, no, it was originally, I'd say, this very idealistic thing where it was coming out of universities. It was like, oh, you're working on this part of the stack, I'll work on this other part of the stack, and like we're all getting paid by research grants, right. so it doesn't really matter. Right. Mm-hmm. And what's changed now is that it used to be that using open source was a very subversive thing. Yes, mm-hmm. totally. Like it was now, sticking now it to the being, man. Right now, it's now the man is exploiting open source. Yeah, well, well so that so so they won the they won the open source has won the battle where you no longer have like I remember when I was starting out, you have to fight to use open source. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have a funny story about that, which well, I forgot well, to tell at the beginning. But let me, let me fit it. But, but now it's the reverse. Now all of a sudden, it's like the big companies, in Paul's words, the soulless corporations who are filing the snotty bug reports, and like it's bad enough to get a snotty bug report from a customer who's paying you. Mm-hmm. But when it's from somebody who doesn't even give you anything, like the the right. there's some legendary GitHub threads that you can read where basically somebody's like, uh, you know, you don't understand who's the customer here. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, well, I'm not gonna tell my funny story now because that would lose the moment. But I will say that I again, it comes back to me a feeling that there's this problem that exists where the mindset is I want to get paid for doing things the way that I want to do them. And I think that that's the challenge that I run into with this, which is they could ignore those bug reports, right? You could right. say, "Listen, I, pff, I don't care what you think." Like literally, I mean, a lot of these projects, most most open source, I don't know statistics, maybe not it does. Most open source projects have a single maintainer, 
and almost almost always a single contributor. If you're very lucky, you get a full from. So there's almost always one person that's doing it. That person has the ability to to do whatever they want, mm-hmm. right? Even the most popular ones, right? Even though they probably wouldn't do this, they could, in theory, do whatever they wanted. Well, that's the whole idea of a benevolent dictator. Benevolent dictator for life, exactly. Right, right, right. So, but my point is, they they want to get paid for doing operating this in the way that they want to operate this and taking doing this in a way and maybe that's not the right model maybe there's a point where you know these things turn over i mean what happens today often i see not for python that's obviously not going to go away but for li- libraries and you know somebody will build one and they'll maintain it for a while and they get sick of it and a few will pop up so like likely when i when i wrote it was the very first and only recommendation engine for node now there are a dozen right um, I have maintained it a few years because, frankly, there's better options available, right? Um, and so that becomes the circle of life where the community is maybe not contributing to the original project, but creating new ones that pop up around it to replace it and augment it, and it becomes this kind of free-flowing, free-form mm-hmm. entity and community. So I find it very similar to um, the the things that journalists are lamenting about. Yep. Mm-hmm. So journalists are talking about like you know. The, we used to get paid. We, we we used to get paid. We used to get paid a lot. We were the we were the arbiters of, of what content was, and then all these people came along and they started making content for free. And that content isn't the right content, or you know, or, 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 or whatever complaint it is. But a new technology, the internet allowed anyone to write, and lots of people wrote for free, and it devalued what what they were doing. And then the people who wrote for free found business models, whether it was like being able to get a job from writing, or you know, YouTube. Royalties or, or or whatever the thing is, and there's this really strong parallel that that the people who are maintaining the big projects are like, well, you know, we want to get paid for this. How come no one's paying us? And the people who are maintaining the small projects and who are building it for free and are getting jobs out of it or getting consulting out of it or whatever are like, you know, fuck it, I'm, I'm making billions <laughs> of these. I do it because I like to yeah. write and and you know, yeah. I, I don't care about your your problems of of maintaining Python. Yeah, it was mm. it was. So I, I tweeted this and I'd like to expand on it, which was a. Uh, I think a lot of these free projects crowd out paid products. Mm. Like, and it's, it's, I mean that in a very economic sense. That like if there's four free libraries sitting around for recommendations, it's really hard to get paid for one. Mm. And I think that makes perfect sense for projects on the level of the one that you're talking about, Sean, um, and especially for like JavaScript libraries. And um, there's a lot of overlap. I think no shade like, being thrown at JavaScript. No, no shade, no, truly no shade. Truly no shade on the side of the table. Yeah. I feel it. Anti shade. Um, but I'm just saying that, like you know, it, there are plenty of, and I think that's sort of like where all the fun and the creativity is happening. Is like, oh yeah, I made this project and I'm going to put it out there, and someone else might make another one, and that's cool. And you can choose whatever you want, and that really mirrors sort of like the information revolution in a lot of ways with content and journalism and and other things where like music even um, where you could just like give it away and now paid products can't compete. I think that's actually okay in a pretty natural and expected development and we shouldn't fight what's happening. Um, but then there's still plenty of examples of projects like Python and its packaging or Ruby and its packaging or whatever um, that aren't being supported at all and it seems like you can't use a small project to explain why we shouldn't support a big project because those so big projects. Start I think OpenSSL well. is a really good yeah, example. Totally. Here. So OpenSSL had one maintainer, and it was it had some security issues with it <laughs> uh, that were basically, and, and everyone in the world was was relying on it, and then everyone got screwed. Yep, totally. I actually I don't I don't agree. I think that if you think about how many how many languages exist today, how many options you have to choose between, I think that. It is true that you that Python, you're not going to have like three versions of Python that people are maintaining. But there's so many languages. If the Python maintainers are like, listen, we don't want to do this anymore, 
and they walked away from it. It's not like the world would end, right? I mean, there, there, the existing Python may not get better. Oh, I'm going to disagree way. on this. <laughs> Good. So, if you look at at all the companies and all the projects and and everything mm-hmm. that are being built on Python, the, the the world would end. Like if if Python went away, I mean, someone would would come in and have to support it. Exactly. Right, no, right, but that, right. that's so more, then why don't more we just point. do it? That's I guess the part. Why do we wait for like a disaster to happen? I mean, even with like OpenSSL, for example, I mean, they were asking for years for donations, openly soliciting, trying to get people to pay towards, and it was only when there was this huge bug that suddenly everyone was like, "Oh my god!" So I have a strong <laughs> opinion about this. Um, basically, they're asking the wrong questions. If you're going around saying we want donations or whatever, yeah. like basically com- com- trying to kickstart, right? Co- yeah. Companies actually really can't give donations. Donations are really fucking hard to give. Yep. What what they should be looking at is companies and their risk profiles. So you have a company that is built on top of Python and they've no support contract, and the whole thing could fall under them at any minute. They're definitely going to want to. Donate or or give or buy or something that that reduces their liability in some way reduces mm-hmm. reduces their risk factor and the idea of going around and saying oh we need money please give us money I think I think is ludicrous and and the the idea that that I've drawn up for this is basically someone should go out with literally a sales team go to every Silicon Valley startup every venture capitalist startup every or every every venture capitalist everyone who makes revenue in the software business and say give us. 0.1% of your revenue or 1% of your revenue or somewhere somewhere in that range and we'll make sure that it goes to the to the libraries that you rely on to de-risk uh, that those things going away the bugs not being done all, all, all that sort of thing and the idea that that people would just like send like throw their hands in the air and say why won't anyone donate to us like, it should be a very proactive approach of going out to each of these companies saying give us money here's an LOI you know here's my checkboard you know Br- bring yes. out the checkbook. That sounds we'll a lot sure like a solace. Are they more likely? Like we're going back so to actually yeah. uh, with OpenSSL, I talked to. It was actually had a very interesting setup, and I, um, I talked to Steve Marquez, who was at OpenSSL, um, just to like understand that structure. And it was actually they realized exactly what you realized, which was even though people keep saying OpenSSL never got more than like two thousand donations a year, that wasn't how they were actually paying their bills. They were doing consulting contracts, and they brought in no more than I think a million a year, but you know it was more than two thousand dollars. So there's Steve Henson who is contributing to, or kind of, he was like the one paid maintainer for a while at OpenSSL, and now they have a bunch of other people. Um, and then Steve Marquez came in for this reason to say, like, hey, like I'll write a little bit of code here and there, but really what I think you need is a little bit of a business mindset. And so he managed and continues to manage all of the contracts, all of the business services. None of the developers want to talk to clients, but he'll be kind of like that interface. Even like mm-hmm. email, he says, you know, like don't ever email Steve Henson, just email me. I'll forward it to him if he needs it. Um, and so like I think that actually speaks to what is what open source needs more of is um, a business. And a business mindset, right? So, and, and just, sure. I, I'm proposing something that, that that's ever so slightly different to that. That rather than you know a single company, uh, like or sorry, rather than each company like OpenSSL having a, a business person who goes around and, and who tries and raise money or who sells the developers' time for things, uh, you you have a single company. So you have the United Way of open source. You have yes. the United Way of open source. But, but then, Paul, then you still have the issue. Like, how does this United Way decide where the money goes? You can look at people's gem files to, to com- determine where the money goes. I'm totally on board with this. This is kind of what I'm slowly trying to move towards. So, so I, think awesome. companies right, well, are, <laughs> I think companies are more likely, when they get scared like that, to hire a shadow maintainer than they are to donate to the open source project. Like you see this all the time. Like companies that rely on big projects like you know, HBase and Cassandra, like they actively go out there and try to ha- they basically have shadow maintainers on their team whose job it is to be the expert on the source code so to update companies- it. 
typically use more than just HBase. They're, they're, they're using hundreds oh, no, no. and I'm, possibly thousands so of libraries. We're talking about a class of projects, which are the huge projects, like the programming languages, right, 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 right. The, the the big projects, because the small ones like, we've already talked about those. We can go back and talk about them again, but those are a different story. For well, these do, do we think that the small projects don't deserve funding? I think that it's much harder to make a case for them because they live and die so so quickly. I think it's really I, hard. Yeah, I would liken them to art, um, which is how a lot of people think about code. And when it's sort of on that level, I think of it as art and, and creative expression. When I think about like the big projects, I think about them like highways or roads or infrastructure or cathedrals or cathedrals. I, this, this is interesting. <laughs> no, no, no one thinks I don't that agree the small on that things deserve deserve some sort of support. I think that if you were willing to maintain one long term, maybe the problem is they're just. Less complicated, so then you run into the barrier. Like, if it was really easy to recreate Python, maybe we would. Right? Mm-hmm. It's it's you know JavaScript libraries are one thing. Uh, I like to think about stuff I do is a little more complicated than that. But still, <laughs> that's my personal opinion. Like, there's a definitely a gradient of the complexity of something. Like, for example, you know, in most places there is like n number of implementations of a bit vector. Like, it is really not hard to write a bit vector. Like, if you really didn't like the ones out there, you could write it yourself. But a programming language is on the other end of the spectrum, where it's really complicated. So if you've ever done one, it's like Crazy hard to do, and on the spectrum there, if, if the smaller ones probably deserve, but there's the replacement cost is so low that you can just turn them through. On the higher end, where the replacement cost is higher, this is where I think that if a company really was scared about their reliance on it, they're less likely to support the open source project where they have no control over what the money goes towards. Like if I give Dope an SSL, I actually, I personally believe that they would do something positive with it, but a corporation cannot make that that bet. So I want somebody on my team who knows OpenSSL code that can improve it or change it in the ways that I need it. And that's my I see that as my investment in my protection. So I, I'm gonna suggest that that we're thinking about this a little bit wrongly. Because the the way that, that we're talking about big projects, you know, big projects are infrastructure, small projects are, are art or, or whatever. I disagree with that too, I think. Is a okay, <laughs> is, is, it, it applies kind of a morality to the value of particular startups or the value of or not, not startups um, of, of open source projects and, and and the value of what they do. And really the value applies to individual companies. Like a, a company d- derives a certain value from a certain library, and it doesn't matter whether it's a big library or a small library or a big project. You know, it's it's that company should be putting money into its risks, and if its risks include a very small library that has one maintainer, but that is a key part of their drug recommendation engine, <laughs> it's. <laughs> it's going to be up to that company to, to to make sure that the money goes to the right places. And so the way of determining who gets money that that I've been thinking of is like literally looking at gem files or, or looking at palm files or you know whatever it is in your particular language. You, you you can follow that dependency tree to see who actually is involved, what projects are involved in 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 making your library, how much they're being used, and and determine that way you know who should get support or. or you know, even even whether that that there is there's someone down that path who is willing to support what you have. Yeah, I mean, I actually totally agree. I think when I think of big versus small projects, maybe that's not the right term, but just the idea of like something that has critical dependencies or um, someone or something like really really needs this to work for their own purposes, then somebody should be supporting it. Um, and also, just kind of as a simple heuristic, like if maintainer is asking for more support. They might need more support, and support doesn't always look like money. But maybe it's like I don't have the time to work on this. I'm really stressed out. Whatever. Like it requires some sort of closer attention. If a maintainer is really happy, I mean, Sean, you're happy with like your project, and you're not asking for any support, then like we don't need to support it. So the thing that uh, that this inevitably gets to is is what happens when money gets introduced to open source. 
I, I I wouldn't at all argue that open source doesn't deserve money and needs to keep doing it as as art. But definitely, let's all agree the four of us deserve a lot of money. Can we can agree on that. Yeah. But I think there's definitely an argument to be made, and I think that you've both made this that people get involved in open source for for intrinsic value, and it's not for the money largely. And so when you start to introduce money to it, and you start to you know prioritize, and, and maybe people want project management and and and, and that sort of thing, and, and roadmaps and deadlines and and that sort of thing, is money going to damage what what we believe as open source, and, and how can we how can we avoid that? Or is the answer that really you have to help projects transition between? I laid out my four categories, whether or not you agree mm-hmm. with them, but maybe if a project becomes really critical and has an individual maintainer, you have to, there has to be an infrastructure to support them transitioning to a different model, right? Where there is, I mean, you know, we don't sit around worrying about what's going to happen to Spark because the Databricks is there. We don't worry about what's going to happen to Kafka because Confluence is there. And and they have the product managers and that sort of thing who talk to the customers who d- determine the the order of things and the the priorities and the roadmaps. And, and, and maybe maybe the answer is that you have to help these projects transition. I just I, I worry that even if you followed back the gem paths or the packages, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's still not clear to me if you know exactly who to support and how. And I mean, yes, they want support. And I, yeah. That makes total sense. But again, I worry about going back to the thing I've mentioned a few times: is do they want support to do their project the way they want to do it, or do mm-hmm. they want to do support to do the project in the way that the companies want to use it and the way that they want to go? Because it's not like they'll get money to just keep doing it. Like the money mm-hmm. comes with expectations yeah, that you will absolutely. do what I want. Right, 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 right. I, yeah. I mean, the, the, I mean, the money is for de-risking largely, and so the the. the there has to be some sort of maintenance guarantee or turnaround time or, or you know understanding that bugs are going to get fixed in order for that to happen. So one point yeah. I quickly wanted to make uh, in regard to like what happens when we introduce money into open source. What I had said in the beginning of this was that everybody gets paid for open source already, and I think that's a nice framework to have because but you it, can't take that to the mm. grocery store on Fridays. Well, no, I'm no, saying, yeah. well, what I'm trying can, is so for example, like um, Heroku is employing the core Ruby maintainers right now. Right, and so like they have a full time job, and they're allowed to work on Ruby, and that works right now because Heroku is supporting them. Who knows if Heroku will support them later? You know, Ruby is older than Heroku, and but in the end, there's some sort of arrangement working there. We're not thinking about like what's going on with Ruby. Is it okay for that that language because Heroku is paying somebody to work on it? So money is already there and already being used. We just aren't quite thinking of it as like as as directly, I guess. Well, it goes back to a lot of these again. A lot of these open sources coming out of the government. Yeah. Who, who was really paying for this? Right. Tax dollars. The internet started like, because the the government was funding it. Yeah, like so all those all those people who were getting a PhD were in effect funding this infrastructure. Right. right. So yeah, money's so, already there. Well, so it was but you could m- say it was it was on the back of somebody getting paid, you know, 20k a year as a grad student. Right. <laughs> no, so I'm, m- I'm serious. That's yeah. why you see Berkeley student gets paid, which is right. pathetically low. But sure. money now or money that's in open source now is not being directed towards a particular goal or a particular agenda. It's it's you know being worked on on the side or or, or something along those lines. Although yeah, I agree, everyone, everyone is getting paid, but they're not getting paid to do a thing largely. And so when companies start to start to support that, then people change from doing a thing because they like it or or, or because they're using it for work and and they feel other people could use it to actually needing to support this for you know some other company's agenda and and that's a different it's a different goal it's a different feeling it's it's yeah. different from from what I want to do in open source. Well, Nadia, you've you've talked to the most. I know you've done so many interviews. Can you um? <laughs> Is there any common thread about people wanting to get paid or not wanting to get paid? What are yeah. what are you hearing the most? Um, well, I think it's part of actually what Sean was saying around you know do they want to get paid to do the same thing they've always been doing and like life obviously just doesn't work that way as nice as it would be and so I think like 
community and funding are actually really closely tied. And I've tried to be careful to call it like sustaining open source infrastructure more than just funding, um, mm. even though it kind of gets simplified to funding sometimes um, because it's not really about money. It's sort of just about like money enabling people to do what they already want to do. And and so when I think about like introducing more money, let's say, to open source, it's really around like how do you help enable a healthy, thriving community to exist? How do you help maintainers manage their time better? And yeah, I, I think it, it's like a very delicate question and it has to be implemented by somebody who I guess like understands kind of, we're not trying to like change open source, right? Like it shouldn't be a centralized thing. You can't have say like an institution that is producing all of the open source infrastructure and it just like comes from this one place. That would be awful. <laughs> um, you have to work with like each of these little ecosystems is completely different. Um, each of them takes pride in being very different from the other ones. And so figuring out how to coordinate all of that is actually probably the hardest part. Although let's agree if there was an institute for open source, you have to fill out forms and triplicate at the front desk in order to get in <laughs> to, to review the source in the Yes. Yeah. I'd say so what is is the tension here because like originally I feel like a lot of this arrived out of it was very organic, right? A lot of projects being created and it was almost Darwinian in that Something survived, and then it died, and something replaced it, and now we're kind of not willing to let it be that simple anymore. Like we're not willing to let the Python maintainers walk away because Python's too important. Like we're not willing to let it be Darwinistic anymore. Like we have to find some way. I, I don't think that's it. I, I think we are willing to let anyone walk away who who wants to walk away. I think that people are looking at money that is arriving in other parts of the ecosystem and saying, "Where's mine?" It isn't fair that where's that mine? is going there. It. it, it it is where is mine, but where I feel where is mine is is a very kind of pejorative. Well, I don't. Angle I don't it. mean it at all that way. Okay. I just meant it more like I worked so hard on this with this idealistic view that I was giving back to the community. Right, what right, what right, Sean right, said, right. you know, that everybody and then I see all these people who are taking the code, not contributing back, and by right, the way, right, right. yeah, and, and then making by the way, right. being real jerks when they have a support request. Yeah, right. Like I think it's so again, that's, it, that's hard. But like, how who decides what's fair then? Like I, I agree with you because I was funny when I remember when Red Hat went public and all of a sudden the founders of Red Hat were filthy rich and I remember being like, what the hell happened to Linus? Right, <laughs> and then I read an article where like they did give him a bunch of shares of Red Hat right, and right, used right. to buy a fancy. And I was, was like, it, I still was like, wait a second. <laughs> well, it's like, it's, it's, he got a fancy car, and they got like you know yeah. that's not well, it's, fair. It's, it's like the whole Kickstarter <laughs> thing with um, Oculus VR. Sure, um, right, they, like, right. So, um, yeah. so, so a lot of people had kickstarted Oculus VR, and they felt like they were part owners, and then they mm-hmm. sold to Facebook for what was it like six hundred three, three billion? I think. Because oh, it yeah, wasn't yeah, equity yeah. based. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like we've been kind of stuttering our way towards open source. Perhaps needing money, that there's an issue of what projects survive versus wither. And capitalism is actually has a pretty well defined model for this. You know, like um, if a company can't find sufficient customers to pay them for their goods, they go out of business. And I think uh, when, it, when I hear what Sean and Nadia and Paul are saying about like who decides how much funding to give to somebody, mm-hmm. we talk about a centralized institute of open source. I'm like, well, wait a second. But I'm curious to hear other people's thoughts around this. Well, I think there's. Um, a bit of a, a patronage, patronage. I don't know how you pronounce that in America. Um, model around it at the moment that you, know, you, you, you could imagine that you know Python or something like that is is the Sistine Chapel and, and um, there's a there's a Medici somewhere who's who's funding its development for basically altruistic or um, per, perhaps personal status reasons or, or or something along those lines. And in fact, there's people who've been doing things with GitTip and Patreon and, and and that sort of thing who are who are looking at that as a as a kind of a patronage model, which I think is a terrible way of of funding these things relative to the more capitalist alternative. Personally, well, it's interesting because they're kind of doing it after the well. So there's two models. 
there's the after the hat, which we already talked about, after the fact where you kind of go around saying, hey, we built this. And the second is I'm fascinated that now people are trying to kickstart software. Yeah, it's actually a bunch of, I know like Django, um, RVM, I mean, there have been a bunch of crowdfunding campaigns around funding development, but it's hard, right? Because developers already don't want to spend time marketing themselves. Um, everyone agrees that, I mean, even outside of coding, that Kickstarter campaigns are a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can only really do it like once, or maybe twice, until people are kind of tired of you. Uh, and I, I don't think I've seen one that's gone much more than like 50K or so. So I received a, a cold email a while back from uh, Ruby maintainers, uh, and I'm not sure I'm not sure who exactly was involved in it, but they they were looking to get funding to uh, sponsor the kind of Ruby ecosystem, RVM, yes. and the 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 servers that that that, that go behind um, uh, Ruby gems and and and, and yeah. that sort of thing. Um, they did it. They made it. Yeah. So so mm-hmm. how much? Can you, yeah, it's you called uh, Ruby Together. If we're referring to the same thing, I think it's actually a really great model. As we talk about sort of like how do you direct more money without it turning into this like weird capitalist business? And I think it's actually really important to decouple infrastructure from business models for that reason, um, because you're not selling things and you want to sort of like it's more of saying like we need this to be good so that all the other business stuff on top of it is good. Um, and so yeah, Andre created this thing called Ruby Together. I think it's structured as a 501c6, um, so a trade organization. And he got a bunch of recurring donations from companies and from individual developers um, to sponsor work on what he calls Ruby infrastructure. And so I think they mostly do Bundler, RubyGems, and RubyGems.org. And part of it was because of this, like some of these things that we've talked about, where, like, for example, uh, there were a couple of companies that were funding or basically employing uh, maintainers of different core Ruby projects. And once they lost that support, because it just didn't contribute to the company's bottom line or whatever, um, no one was maintaining these projects for a really long time. And so I think like RubyGems went like a year without anybody committing to it, um, which is crazy. Um, and they had issues like where somebody hacked into RubyGems, um, I think it was a couple of years ago. Mm, I remember that. Yeah, and so it, and nobody could take care of it because it's a volunteer system, right? And so nobody is responsible and everybody has full-time jobs. Mm. Um, some people... I, I remember in that particular case, someone was away or something. So yeah, there was, it was, right. There was like 12 or 24 hours before anyone actually yeah. looked at it. People had to take vacation days from their job to work on it, which is incredibly nice of them mm. to do for everybody else, right? Um, so it's stuff like that that I think they want to help prevent. So how much did they raise? Who did they raise from? So they're very transparent on the website about all of this. I think, I haven't checked recently, I want to say they have maybe like 16000 a month recurring um, and they're trying to grow that. So I think they that just That is ludicrously started. small. Yeah, yeah. Like that's, that's, it's that's really, really small, right, right. which is kind of The important crazy, right? thing here is, is that it's recurring. It's recurring, like the, that's very important. Yeah. But still, that's barely one full-time person yeah. at San Francisco right. rates. Yeah, and it's a shame, right? And, and more people should be donating to it. How, how, how is it so I, low? I just think like, the whole donation thing is fundamentally broken. Well, altruism, unfortunately, if you worked in nonprofits, you know altruism is this great thing that is a very short well. Well, so like this people... isn't this isn't altruism by any means. This is companies who like possibly went down on uh, when Ruby Gems went down, saying like, "Fuck it, we can't do that anymore. We we lost X amount of money, and I'm willing to donate five thousand or or whatever." Yeah. Listen, I think if it was if it was clear if I donated my five thousand dollars, that wouldn't happen again. It would be different. I don't know that the I, I have trouble believing corporations see the math being that simple. But they that, should. I mean, because yeah, if someone were dead 
dedicated full time to Ruby Gems, for example, if something went down, they would get it back up, and that didn't happen because nobody was working full time on it. Well, so if you're a corporation, do you try to support the Ruby Gems product, or do you find ways to isolate your service and your product away? From I mean, Ruby you, you Gems? do both. Like, but the you know, f- fundamentally, if you're based on on Ruby Gems or on on the Ruby ecosystem, and you're making, let's say, you're making a million dollars a year, right? Is it is it something that you're not going to donate five thousand dollars a year to? Of course, you're going to donate five thousand dollars a year to it because you know just fundamentally, someone wants to de-risk you know your your site going down or your deployment process going down. Like if if you're unable to deploy for for two days because Ruby Gems is down, right? You're you're in a really shit position, and there's there's CEOs who are coming into the VP of engineering or developers or you know whatever size you are and yelling you know why the fuck is the site down? Why haven't we been able to get this promotion out? Why haven't we been able to get this bug fixed? Whatever that is, and five thousand dollars is a is a trivial amount to to make that happen. Or and I'm I'm making this on a on a one million dollar a year revenue thing. If you're a Salesforce and you're making or I don't know a billion a year or ten billion a year or whatever Salesforce makes, you know, donating you, a million a year, two million a year, ten million a year—it's it's small fry. Well, to follow the money, I mean, Salesforce is actually Heroku. Right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well so, no, but that, that, but no, no, but that's exactly the point. I feel like a lot of these larger companies feel like they do that. Like you think about Google's and Facebooks, and like they they do invest a lot in open source right. and employing these people. But I they're mean, doing it for hell, different Fidera, reasons. For a long point, I feel like in. Employed. I, this is me exaggerating. The maintainers of most of the major Apache projects at one point, like these companies, feel like they are. I think it's going to be hard set for them to be like, I'm going to support your project versus I'm going to write my own language Go and I'm going to start writing everything in Go. Well, so I, I don't believe that it's it's a supporting your project. I th- I think the tie that you need to make is is de-risk. I am being helped de-risk my business by support by putting money into making sure that that these things don't happen. And if you were paying for a service contract, I would believe the corporations would see it that way. But they're not. That's not what these. Yeah. I mean, there isn't a service running. contract available. No, I know, but that's my point. Is I think that that's why I don't see the line being that straight. I don't yeah. think. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. The donation. I, I'm, I'm pro donation. I'm just saying it doesn't map, as you said before, it doesn't map into value delivered for the corporations. The, there can be a more direct map than is than is being drawn now. Though I agree, it's not it's not a service level agreement. I have a, a question for all of you. So there's a new license that just came out recently called the Fair Source license. Sorry. Have you seen yep. this? From so, Sourcegraph. Yeah. So it's it's interesting because basically it try it's not an open source license, but it's not a closed source license. Essentially, it says that here you can look at my source code, you can use it, but there's a limit on the number of users you can have before you start paying me. Right. Mm, so it's not okay. like a you just take it, do whatever you want with it. I mean, most open source contracts are like you know go do with it what you will. But yeah, fair yeah, source yeah. is like you essentially can try it out until a certain point, at which point you just start paying me. So it's more like a shareware. It's shareware, yeah. It's like yeah. shareware. It's a little bit unclear about how you enforce the limits. There's lots mm-hmm. of questions, but I'm curious: is that is is the solution in the licensing? Is the problem that the licenses now are too open? If if Ruby came with a license that listen, by the time you're making ten million dollars a year on a Ruby program, you have to give us five thousand dollars. Would that would that solve the problem? Because well, then- there's a question of of what is a Ruby program. So, for example, if you're a, let's say you're a big bank and you you make you know, more than ten million dollars a year, and everything's in Java, and there's a team that goes out and says, well, we're going to be doing you know some some Ruby stuff now, and maybe you think that in the future everything will be Ruby, but right now it's it's one small thing. Mm-hmm. You know, is the bank going to say, oh, this is great, let's give our money to Ruby, or is the bank going to say Ruby is banned and you're not allowed to make anything <laughs> Ruby? <laughs> Maybe yeah. I don't know. I think it's I. I really like the fair source license. I like the people behind it. Um, the lawyer who drafted it, Heather Meeker, she's worked on uh, Mozilla and like a bunch of other things. So she has a good mind for all that stuff. I think it'll be great for maybe some of those projects we we're talking about, where um, 
let's call them smaller projects, air quotes, <laughs> um, of, yeah, you have something that you're working on and you want to, you know, charge fairly for it. I think it'll be a lot harder for stuff like, yeah, Python, for example, um, to use. But why? I mean, why? So why? Why? I mean, well, why? I think, why would the same of, rules not apply? <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. Why? So, <laughs> Sean, Sean gives us the five can five whys of the Kanban. Um, <laughs> That's right. That was almost all five whys right there. I think there are a lot of answers to that. My answer to it is just in looking at the history of open source in the first place, right? Like we worked for. 20, 30 years to get all this stuff open for a reason. And it had these, I, I mean, I think when it started, maybe it was kind of more of this like political counterculture thing of like, we shouldn't like charge for something that should be free or whatever. Um, or like code should be free, anyone should be able to use it, no one, no one owns this, whatever. But then you saw this like incredible explosion of startups, like in large part due to open source, which is something no one could have predicted, right? It's like when you create a platform and you give people access to that platform, they start making things that you could have never even dreamed of. It's so great. And like we should default to like having those kinds of tools for anybody to pick up and do something incredible with. Well, um, and I want to protect that. It's one of those that, things right? that's obvious yeah. in retrospect and, yeah, and not right. ahead well, of time. Exactly. I think GitHub's relationship with open source is fascinating. Yeah, it is. Like um I mean you you put in your article that like this they yeah. they fueled the explosion but they're closed source. Yeah. And and I'd say now they spent all day roll around in money. I mean this is <laughs> And now um, there is a big petition from a bunch of open source people, like, why aren't you giving us all these tools? And I mean, the capitalist part of GitHub is like, well, we don't make any money off of these open source projects. Yeah, yeah it's really hard because they ended up, I mean, they make money off of enterprise. Uh, I mean, yeah. they, they make money off those open source projects. Oh, it's, in, in it's it, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a freemium model. They got huge because they they. Because of all the open source, GitHub is the default. No one wants to use GitLab or, or whatever because of, of the network effects of, of open source. So to suggest that there's no value there, oh. and, and that you know, I'm sure that, that that someone with a better analytical no, so, so, uh, sense so, so, than me could actually put a, a dollar no, value. Let's no. look at SourceForge before them. I mean, SourceForge made money off open before GitHub even existed. There was open source, right? Right, but so, all, all, all of all of GitHub's value is derived from the fact that open source is well, all. So, so here, here's yeah. here's here's a okay. question then for you. You know, so you're the product manager for GitHub. Mm -hmm. You get a long list of the, of requests for features from open source, which doesn't pay you anything. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you have a, a list of requests from enterprise customers, right? And you're trying to put together your own map. Well, so yeah, and I, I, I agree that that there, there's certainly a temptation to say fuck it. You know, well, we're, th these guys are paying us money, and I, I think this is one of the the very uh, difficult lines to to straddle. When you have that group of customers, you you have to be very careful to keep them happy and to keep them there. And you can't you can't please everybody, and you can't do everything, and you can't acquiesce to like demands and that sort of thing. But if open source was to leave GitHub, there's an existential crisis for GitHub. Yep, totally. Yeah, I think well, I, it's just a balance that they're trying to find right now. Um, because and, and this has been written about publicly too in articles and stuff, just about like internally right now in GitHub, there's sort of this tension between do we double down on enterprise? But if we do I too much of that, then we forget our yeah, there's there's yeah. just a little bit of turmoil, executives changing positions and stuff. And I think they're just gonna have to try to figure it out because they realize that yeah, we might not directly make money, and this is kind of true of like Open source businesses too, right? Of like, we might not directly make money off of that community, but without that community, the rest of it's kind of meaningless. So, I will say one benefit of GitHub, and I think the genius of GitHub actually is that they've actually turned like what do you call corporate software 
to look more like the open source projects. Like right. yeah, you go back before GitHub, right? Like most most closed source projects were managed much differently in open source. But today, everybody's on GitHub. We're all doing pull requests. Yeah. We're basically using yeah, open yeah, source yeah. software awesome. methodologies for mm-hmm. closed source, which actually is is in the favor of open source because it makes it seem less different. It doesn't seem strange. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's not a different right. way of thinking. And, it, and it's yeah. actually interesting that there's a lot of the closed source methodology that people want GitHub to allow that GitHub refuses to allow. So for you know tighter integration with Jira or replacing the issues or yeah. replacing pull requests with something that involves like more code review or, or, or that sort of thing, GitHub is saying no, this is the way to do it. And so people, as you say, they end up much closer to open source than they would end up otherwise. I, I would say that pull requests have helped fuel continuous delivery. Hmm. Oh, no, just bring this on. Coincidence. Wow. I would also argue open source is fuel continuous delivery. Oh, well, all right. Let's let's hear this. Yes, I have nothing to back that up. I just I would say that. <laughs> you say you're argue. <laughs> I didn't so, say I was going to argue that. I would say I would say this. So I think it's interesting because people use continuous delivery when you want to deliver continuously, and open source fundamentally doesn't do that. For the most part, people release with almost Byzantine release models of like we'll release something with a version number in like a, you know every quarter or or whatever that thing is. If you're using small projects, the small projects will tend to like you know you you make a you make a pull request. There's a new feature goes in or whatever, and then you're like, oh, I'd like to release a new one, and so you make a pull request with a new number or that sort of thing, and that is is almost close to continuous delivery, except it's it's not actually continuous. There's no actual infrastructure. There's no automation. So yeah, I think open source isn't contributed to frequently enough to have continuous delivery, and are generally not continuously delivered. Although it's really hard to, I would. This yeah. is a topic from their side. It's hard to have continuously delivered downloadable software, right? Because once I download, not not at all. Like, you, you you just you know every single version of the software gets tagged with a with a branch name or a, or a SHA or there's, whatever. There's ni- nightly builds and stable builds in most of these projects. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, not, not nightly and stable is, is continuous delivery. Yeah, I, I, I would I would argue that they don't exist for most of these projects. I I would argue they occasionally exist on the larger projects. Uh, well, when they start making money, maybe they will. <laughs> <laughs> Tied it all together. Wait, I I thought you had an anecdote you were going to share. So this is completely off topic, but a long time ago when I used to work at Verizon, this would have been fifteen. I don't know, long time ago. Were um, they? Do they have a hotline commercial? Yes. So anyway, back when I used to work at Verizon, (laughs) this is the phone company. I was a big proponent of of open source at Verizon, and this is back when Linux was like, oh, scary stuff. What is that? And the big tagline was, Linux is not ready for prime time. This was the big thing. Like, Mm. oh, we can't use it in production because Linux is not ready for prime time. And here is Sean saying, Linux is ready for prime time. And I managed to succeed in creating this little bubble inside Verizon of let's use open source, let's let's get it through. And I, I actually was invited to speak at a, a Linux conference here, the first time I've ever been to San Francisco. Right? I, I lived in the Northeast. I'd never been to California. <laughs> I flew all the way to San Francisco to speak at, at a Linux conference, and they weren't even that big. I mean, this was maybe four rooms in one of the hotels around here. And I got here, and my talk was starting in an hour, and I got a phone call from my boss saying that the lawyers at Verizon were afraid that they were going to get sued because this is back when people were suing you if you use Linux because it was infringing on the patents of other companies. And I got prohibited from going on stage because I I flew all the way here an hour before my talk, wow. they're like, "You can't go on stage because if you go on stage, people will sue us because they'll hear that you talking is about a phone Linux. call that you don't answer. I, right. I an hour before <laughs> any happened. talk, yeah. you do not answer <laughs> the, the phone this, from your this boss. This is why, like, when when Paul and I go to, on speeches, I try to get a hold of him, and he's like, yeah. 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 I thought they were calling to wish me luck. I didn't think they were going to be like, nope, sorry, no, nope, you can't go on.' So let's all admit we've come farther than that, which is yeah. great. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So fu- funny, a similar thing happened to me. I was um, 
one of my first internships was I was working at Sony uh, in London, um, Sony Computer Entertainment Europe, and my job was to port the iToy driver to PS2 Linux, which was the the open source hobbyist lin- version of Linux. And I made the uh, I made the transition, uh, or I, ma- I ported it, whatever, and we were we went to release it, and we did release it. And then the Monday after, I got an email from my boss saying, uh, "Sorry, we we had to pull it. Oh. Uh, the lawyers didn't particularly like you know this, and it was, it was an actual IP issue. It wasn't like an uh, and fr- we're afraid of open source issue. It was like someone else owned the library uh, mm. that that had been ported, and there was some magic numbers in there, and so we we were going to do some something where there was two kernel modules instead. It was it never got done." But yeah, lawyers. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. So yeah. if we agree, we're gonna get rid of all the lawyers. We're gonna okay. pay all the open source people. I mean, we've oh, got we're gonna, a lot we're of gonna progress <laughs> in this podcast. We're, we're gonna use the money that so, we so used to pay the lawyers. To San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> oh. We're gonna use the money that we used to pay the lawyers to pay the open source people. I w- what would we do with all that? There's too much money. We wouldn't have anything to do. <laughs> so we we haven't really touched on something that I actually was very curious about. You said in your article that you thought VCs were not willing to fund open source. Uh, I call it not venture backable. Well, specifically the infrastructure stuff I'm talking about, and I guess language is part of this problem. VCs back plenty of open source businesses and plenty of infrastructure, especially stuff around DevOps and data infrastructure. Um, obviously, you guys are both venture backed, and so, or you guys, um, <laughs> can't see where my hands are going. Um, but yeah, so I mean, like, absolutely, there's a place for venture and, and open source. They backed NPM. That's right. Yep, they did. But I but think is, it, is that not infrastructure? It is absolutely infrastructure. Okay. I think that it's in our best interest, especially looking at history, the history of open source, to keep it a public good, for better or worse um, terminology, in the sense that like we're all benefiting and we're all using it, and so it should be something that is a tool that anybody can pick up and use. This sounds like communism. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> sorry, I said the word. Well, I got like, distracted by the door, and I said the word public good. I should have never said. It. I take it back. There's like a range. Like I but, agree. The, the reality, venture backable is the right way to think about it because the reality is most of these really valuable. I don't want to call them infrastructure. I call them really. I want to call them really valuable open source projects are not going to grow fast yeah. enough to have venture backed returns. Yeah, right. So venture backed yeah. returns are very specific kind of business yeah. return. And some of them don't even have business models. Period. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but but even if they did, they just wouldn't grow fast. Like you know, yeah. Python's been slow burning forever. Right. <laughs> this is not a fast growth right. business. Yeah. Ruby the same thing. Like there's the things that are so fundamental now that we use that just aren't. Fast growth that are going to produce venture back returns, even if they had a business model associated with them. Like Ruby toil in obscurity for years until Rails came out. Like let's let's be honest, these things are non-linear. So the, yeah. the, the, this yeah. is funny. You, you, you talked in your tweets about people investing in programming languages, or you know, has mm-hmm. anyone ever made money from programming languages? So my my PhD was in compilers, um, and I remember being at a conference where I talked to one of the one of the guys who made uh, this. I wouldn't say important compiler, but it was a company that people had heard of, people in the compiler community had heard of. And he said that 85% of compiler companies have one customer. Wow. Uh, and the one customer was like basically providing the services, uh, or they, they had a service contract with them. They were building it for that one customer who used it in one particular one particular case. That's not venture backable. It, it's not, not only is it not venture backable, but like, I mean, with, with compilers, and, and again, Programming languages is, is the same sort of thing. You're competing with free, or you're competing with you know some some other company who's providing it for some internal benefit that they have. The the Googles of the world are, are you know contributing to GCC. Apple is contributing to LLVM. If you come out with another C compiler, no one is really going to um, 
no one's going to make money off it. And so CircleCI is where I ended up as like the closest possible thing that could make money to being a compiler company. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's great. I never heard the origin story before. That's awesome. So I, I like to say, in full disclosure, um, Sean is actually uh, an advisor and an investor in LaunchDarkly, so he obviously believes. That's that why he have, only says nice things about me. Uh, uh, he obviously go. believes that we will have exponential growth and uh, pay yeah. for his kids' college education. That'd be nice because it'd be expensive by then. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be uh, education will be done by then. There won't, there won't be any universities. Uh, that's true. Yeah, uh, the, the they will all have risen up about their student <laughs> That sounds like so. communism. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, is, well Paul, Paul, Paul is from Europe. Uh, there you go. Nice. Yeah. Um, I mean, so Our education is free. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I mean, I think there's a good distinction between a lifestyle and a VC-backed business. Um, VCs want to get exponential returns because they're betting that, like, of the ten companies they invest in, nine will probably fail, and one will have to make up for all that return. Yeah. Yep. So, so they're actually not so, looking. Well, they're not looking for a steady. Five or ten percent return. A year. Well, there's this interesting pathological case of open source. I don't think it happens very frequently, but let's take the in- example of npm for a second, right? Mm-hmm. So you have Node comes out as a language, and it's mm-hmm. really interesting and has a lot of interesting things. It's growing much faster than most other languages, and yes. growing really fast. Um, and then you have npm, which is a package manager for mm-hmm. Node, which actually, in some ways, is more interesting and has more economic value than the language itself, mm-hmm. right? Right. And so npm can raise venture money; they can build a business around it. And like this is an interesting. I don't think this happens very frequently, but this is an obvious case of economic disequilibrium, mm-hmm. right? Where npm wouldn't have existed without Node, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And now, actually, npm today actually does exist a little bit without Node. You can use it to manage packages that are not Node packages, mm-hmm. but. Like you know, this company—if it sold for a billion dollars, right? What does it owe back to the node? Well, this mm-hmm. goes back like, to your red hat, it, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, is it going to be like I'm going to give you a bunch of shares and maybe you could buy a house or maybe a nice car while I go off and buy an island or like how do you? And it's, well, it's particularly funny since Node was built by Giant or right. with Giant as their corporate sponsor mm-hmm. and before it being was cast out into the whatever happened there. <laughs> um, so, is you know, who, who enjoys the economic goodness that that came out from it? Is it is it the people who started it, or is it is it Node, or is it Joint? I mean, this this actually has its roots in the 1600s, where you know, going when, way when back. The, what <laughs> going way back? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what was scientific dis- source code back then was made <laughs> yeah, on the frontier. <laughs> <laughs> they, they had to use calfskin. No, um, <laughs> no, I mean the, the whole thing about. The scientific community went through the same spasms of you know who really gets credit for a new discovery. Mm-hmm. You know what you said about NPM and Node. It's like well, one wasn't possible, but the other amplified its effect. Yeah. It's the same with discovery of calculus. It's like the, the mm-hmm. famous quote was, "I could do this because I stood on the shoulder of giants." Yeah, mm-hmm. like yeah. we have the ability to build all these infrastructure companies now because we do have the foundation of languages. Because we do have the foundation mm-hmm. of yep. compilers. Right, 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 right. And it's it's giants on top of giants on top of giants at this point. It's all turtles, dude. <laughs> yeah. It's giants is about giants and giants are little, little bitty turtle. It's actually a great analogy. I mean, if we're gonna go back to the 1600s, I'll go oh, back to I like the beginning. Back when I was a kid, uh, <laughs> it'll turn out there was a Medici at the end of it at some point. Right, yeah, that's right. You started this, um, but just comparing it to highways and cars in the United States, I actually wanted to write something about this as an allegory. So, like, we have an interstate highway system right now, right? Um, you can take road to go from one one side of the country to the other. Um, that happened in like the fifties or sixties. It got started, mm-hmm. um, but they've been trying to do it for since I think like the twenties. It was, it was actually communism was the reason why they did it. <laughs> I thought it was lobbying. No, it was because they were lobbying by the car companies. They were afraid the Russians open. would invade, and they needed it to get tanks quick. I think it was aliens. Uh, I'm just throwing that. <laughs> <out there. laughs> um, so no, yeah. not not the other kind of communism. Not, not America's being communist to provide all these things. It's like fear of communism. 
Um, right. That was part of it. Um, that there is also another part of it, which <laughs> which was that you know cars started in like the late 1800s or whatever, and they weren't really being. I mean, they were slowly kind of growing, right? But they hadn't hit a point of really being used by consumers everywhere. And suddenly, after World War II, we had sort of like mass production happening, and everyone was like, "All right, like we want to be able to drive anywhere and do anything with these roads." But it was a really shitty system. Um, and so Eisenhower ended up championing it in, during his presidency, and and the argument that he made for it and interstate highway system was really similar to, I guess, like the need for better infrastructure with open source too, which was like, if we can connect everything together, so much more prosperity can happen on top of this highway system. So it's not just consumers driving together or citizens driving around and like seeing each other, but it's also um, like trucking companies can drive across and transport goods from one place to another. Tons of people are going to make money off of having a more efficient system. Well, so to perhaps draw a, a failure in this analogy, the um, there was a very convenient federal system that was already taxing all the all the yep. people right. um, that that could actually build this thing, and I don't right. think that that. And that's yeah. exactly so, so are you suggesting yeah. that this should exist in open it source? Sorry, just to clarify, not a. I don't believe we should have this sort of like unified, whatever centralized system. Federal but, government. But just, of open I already have the forms <laughs> no, 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 drafted just, up, actually. No, so. just, I, yeah, just want to clarify this point. Uh, yeah, I, I just mean that um, that was kind of the point, right? There was somebody to kind of step in and help fund it, but we all right, agree right. that this should exist. And when we talk about, I think though, if you were to Build this federal system. I think VCs would fund that. Yeah. To well, be super clear, I do not want a federal system of. <laughs> but I think that allegory, that's a really good allegory because it brings up the most important point. It took the only proven wealth redistribution mechanism we know, which is government, government. to do that. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the reality is, we're probably not going to have government step in open source. Right. But we've never seen a privatized wealth redistribution right. at that scale work. I mean, we do have governments in open source. We 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 have governing bodies. We there's the Apache stuff. But they don't have taxation rights. They could have. I mean, the, I, they I wasn't sort referring to government as governance. Rights. I was saying wealth redistribution is the idea of taxation and right. But the, so those those good. foundations and communities are receiving money from the from the member organizations. Sure, I, I, I'm talking about the scale of all. Like, if if Apache was all of open source, I think that would be true. But I mean, we're talking about a larger undertaking here, right? It kind of goes back yeah, to that united the, way of open the, source. The, right? There's like a there's model no. here that that could grow into. Into a united way of potentially, and, and, and I'd say one more thing. So I love Nadia's analogy. Um, there's a huge issue right now that all these bridges when, were built in the 1950s and 60s, yeah, and they're crumbling now mm. because it's one of those things where because we're like, supposed to have flying cars. Let me just throw that out there. <laughs> drones, drones. I don't need roads anymore. <laughs> no, it, it's a, it's this issue. It's it's very much like open source. You know, mm-hmm. it's like this issue of deferred maintenance and it's somebody else's problem. Yeah, and all of a sudden these bridges that were rated for 50 years, like they're they're 50 years are here. And the funny thing about physical infrastructure like bridges is it's the one of the few issues that everybody on, no matter how you politically affiliate, everybody agrees that we should have a better infrastructure system. So it's like very non-threatening politically. But, but the bridges... Like, but they still don't get done because it's not a sexy topic and no one wants to fund maintenance. Um, mm. But like even with open source infrastructure, like we're, we don't even all agree that this needs to happen. I think that's kind of like the first step. Is that like all right? We do need to figure out how to support it. What that looks like is a you know we can talk about that. But um, if if we can't agree why we need to support it, and I think that there is quite some disagreement over that, then then we're never (laughs) going to agree on how. Is is there the flip side? Is it true that all open source projects would welcome this kind of? I'm just thinking of the the case of of Hudson, right? So Hudson was an open source continuous build server that was ostensibly under the 
run by the community that Oracle tried to. It's step one of these in old ones that doesn't work very well, and <laughs> it's you, not you nearly as good as CircleCI. Go CircleCI.com, sign up. If you use the the code Sean Burns, you actually have to pay ten percent more, so don't use that one. <laughs> <laughs> like, but the idea was Oracle was like you know the parent company, and they were like, forget you, we're renaming it Jenkins, and we're creating a new one, right? And so they actually resisted having. I don't know what you would call it, like corporate overlord. Corporate yeah. overlord. And so I wonder if even if this did exist, if if it is a universal case that all projects would the important ones, right, would accept this kind of help. Like on on terms that were not theirs, like would they if we could even do it, if we could snap we our sh- fingers. Yeah, we absolutely should not do it on terms that are not theirs. I think the question is not do all projects need it, but do enough important ones need it so that this is worth looking what at. What are the well, terms that people I, let me want be more specific? Yeah. I just would they accept them on Similar enough terms that you could have a generalizable solution is more um, what I mean. I, think, I agree with you that, yeah. that we don't we shouldn't dictate to them, but the problem is if they all want it slightly differently, yeah. there is no general solution then. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the hardest parts is that there every ecosystem is different, or everyone has different needs and different histories, and so you can't just say, "Here's a million dollars, like it's fixed now," right? And so it really and I think that's kind of the fun part is I think of it as sort of like. Like open source infrastructure needs a developer evangelism team, <laughs> or it needs like <laughs> it needs yeah, like yeah. a community manager or, or something. Or a sales right? team. Or a sales it's sounding team. more and more like yeah. a corporation. Um, yeah. Yeah. It needs so, HR and finance. I think of it more as like I think of it more as like stewards and ad- and coming from a nonprofit background, like I think of it as like stewards and advocacy, not like sales and product and like. We oh, need it needs to, like, sales and product. And the, 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 the this, open like, source needs sales and product more than it needs anything. <laughs> else. It's funny because we always project what we like. I actually can see from Nadia's perspective, I work in, in in nonprofits, and I can see from from your perspective, working in, in for profit. Right, right, right. There's often a tendency let's superimpose what's worked on open source because clearly open source not working. The problem is like I don't even know if that's a solution, right? Do we mm. need something that's totally new, something that we have well, never seen before? Let, let, like suppose, communism. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let, let's suppose a million dollars arrive tomorrow for for Python, right? Let's say a million dollars a year arrive tomorrow for for the use of Python. How, how would that be used? How would it be distributed? What what are the what are the conditions by which people get paid by this? Who gets paid by it? How, how does do that we, work? Do we pay out everybody who once contributed? Yeah, I well, mean, that's is hard too. Yeah, because I think this has happened with grants in the past, um, or even right now for open source projects, where like they'll give them a grant for like three years, for example, but then it's like, well, what happens after those three years? And so, and that's even a problem in nonprofits and philanthropy, right? Like you don't want to just sort of get somebody hooked to this like drip of capital, and they just need the money over and over, mm-hmm. and you know, there has to be some sort of like integration into sustainability and impact. Um, and so, like, I mean, I don't, I don't have any magical answers. I think that the one commonality that I've seen across a lot of projects that need more support is that there isn't any sort of like non-coding function that's really celebrated or encouraged. Right, right, right. Um, so, yeah, the, the, there's yeah. no love for for product management and, and or even source. like documentation to like help people get yeah. started. Right. So it's yeah. like you know why aren't people contributing? Well, maybe because they can't figure out how to get started. Right. And right, right. like so investing mm-hmm. into those kinds of things. Maybe it's not always about like. Direct payment or whatever, but it's like, how can we help like build the ecosystem around the code so that it's then easier to kind of like pick up and contribute to? So to to, to ask it a different way, if the people who are looking for the money had their way, how would it be spent? Hmm. It it really depends on the people, which I think is yeah part of the problem. Um, What have some people said, or what, what what's what's the biggest opinion or the top two or something? The maintainers themselves. Have I think a pretty like straightforward approach to it, which is like we want a salary for this, and it's right. like, and I don't think they've put as much thought maybe into like how that actually works, and that's the part that I'm trying to sort out. 
So the, there's you know, the top five or ten people get like a, a proper like Silicon Valley wage out of it, or yeah, or just even being able to like pay rent and yeah, take care of their families, you know, basic stuff. And so they, they, they want to be able um, to work on it full time, yeah, and so work yeah. for let's say Python or something versus right. working for Heroku on Python, right? And so one thing that I think might help in the short term is matching up some of those maintainers with companies that are willing to hire them to work full time on. Their projects because that is happening right now already, mm-hmm. um, and I think sometimes when I've talked to developers who have tried to negotiate that for themselves with companies, it's well, it's been, a really tough it's sell. Hard. Yeah, it's right. a really I mean, tough like, sell, right? so like you're basically saying like, "Hey, hire me to not work on anything that." Exactly, and right, it happens right, right. right now. Like people, it does. Like it's already a practice, and that's why I, I think, I think when that happens, it happens because there's a company that already knows the value of doing this, and so they yeah. try to recruit that person. Rather, yeah. and often they'll negotiate like a fifty-fifty, like with Guido at, at um, yeah, uh, at, at Google. Well, he's now yeah. at Dropbox, but yeah. originally when he went to Google, there was like a fifty-fifty time yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. So I actually had a follow-up question for both of you. Um, one was for Paul, and it's 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 interesting because. You know, you come from a developer background. Why, why are you advocating for sales and marketing for open source? Um, because people don't donate, so you need a sales team to go and get those donations. Mm. So, and and I think that there's no doubt that if you if you showed up at the you know a bunch of unicorns doors and said, "Here's the risk factors that you face. Here's the economic downside." I've of, seen this in a movie, fa- and it was set with a. Uh, the mafia. Mm. Okay. I'd rather go to the Fortune 500 because the unicorns are looking at the stock market, being like, shit, shit, shit. Maybe it's the Fortune 500s, but like, yeah. you, you turn up at people who who have both money and risk on a certain problem, so, and, you're, so and you put a dollar say, uh, value on that risk, and you say, here's what you should do to mitigate that risk. And, and I mean, no one is saying like, we'll, we'll put a horse's head in your bed. <laughs> but, but we're saying like, you know, you can donate or you can not donate, and, and here's the risk. You know, here's the the heart bleed thing that that, mm-hmm. that happened, or or here's you know what happens if all the credit cards in your system, which are being protected by this thing, which is like one maintainer only on Tuesdays, then you can say, you know, give us some money, and then you can direct the money to to good places. And there's there's questions as to how the good places need to go, but like. Getting the money in, I think, is the first thing, and then you can have the conversation about how should we actually spend it. I think this is fascinating because always the sell for developer tools is you know developers don't want sales or marketing; they just want to use it. <laughs> Deve- no, you're, you're right. Yeah. Developers don't want sales and marketing. What you need sales for is to make an enterprise sale. You need to find the champions within the organization. You need to find the people with the purse strings, and you need to make an economic case to them as to why they should spend an that money. An offer they can't refuse. And Make an economic case <laughs> as to why they should spend the money. Man, your infrastructure yeah. is looking pretty rickety. That's awesome. Uh, and and then so, and then you have to like keep the process going. So you gotta come around happy. every week and like keep yeah make awesome. make sure that they're happy. Okay, well, this, this sounds exactly. I'm, with you. Uh, I'm pretty sure Horsehead was HTTP code yeah. 702 or something yeah. like that. Uh, so I have a right, I have but, one but last That's question. fundamentally a sales process, and it's oh, not yeah. like a developer process. Like you, you can't just say. Oh, this should happen, and expect a company to do it, or expect developers within an organization to try and make that happen. There's a specific skill set to managing this process, to getting that money out of people, and and to signing all the things, and and that's called sales. That's what yeah. salespeople do. 
That I'm totally on board with. So, so why is it, and my, this one last question, which is if there is so much economic disequilibrium that exists, so much friction exists between these projects that people are working on and open source that are relying on large companies, why is it that capitalism doesn't kick in and companies do erupt? Even if it's not the maintainers, somebody else, like a side company erupts to, to mitigate the risk the large companies feel so that you know, that jump up and, and, and fill that gap. Because if there is this, this potential, if there is this money that the risk has an economic value, Capitalism would dictate that companies would erupt into this void, even if it's not the maintainer. So, so there's a couple of fill it. A couple of ones that have. So, for example, uh, Ruby stopped maintaining, I know version two point three, or maybe it was Rails stopped maintaining version two point three, and this German company came in and said, you know, th- th- there's a bunch of companies who are stuck on Rails two point three. We are going to support Rails two point three. We're going to backport security fixes hmm. and, and all that sort of thing. And, and they sold licenses for like. I think it was like ten thousand dollars a year or, or something along those lines. They got a ton of customers and they made a ton of money. I, I, I think another thing is that the risk is so dispersed. I mean, so basically, uh, my, my my mafia jokes have said what, what you're selling is insurance, but it's not insurance on any one given point of it. It's we're kind of back to the United States of infrastructure, right? Or like yeah. to have like someone 70s, will fix your pothole. Yeah, well, but to have seventy different people come up, come by your office to advocate their little for their little corners. Not yeah. sustainable. There's not enough right. economy well, I mean, scale. If people did know, if they knew exactly how much money was out there, would would the void be filled by? Is it merely a communication well, problem? Would companies to, just erupt around these problems? I, I, to to me, it goes back to unit economic scale. If you're if you're so if you're hiring a salesperson to go and extract twenty bucks from like three million different companies, that's not enough to afford a salesperson. Yeah, I, and I think there's there's a related thing to this that that developers don't want to make companies and they don't want to sell. They they like to write code. They like to write software, and they don't want and and often don't know how to to take the value that they bring and attach a price tag to it and find the people who will pay that price tag. Well, so Sean, actually, you're a developer and you started a company. Well, I will say that I th- I think that a lot of developers don't know how. I don't even know no. that they do it because they don't want to. They just wouldn't even know how when put in that position. That's something I hear over and over and over again from developers. Is like, I would really, really love if someone would pay me for this and however you want to pay them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just don't even know where to start. I don't know where like, to go. Even I think if they did know where to start, the the work starts to look significantly different than the work that they yes. actually want to do. Exactly. So as you know, mm-hmm. we've all started companies. We know what that's like. You don't write code. When you're when you're starting a company, you talk to customers, you work on product, you hire people, you raise money, and very very little of it actually. Looks you go like to the Institute of Open Source, you fill out your triplicate forms. And <laughs> <a> long time. <laughs> right, right. Well, so my my last, I think we're close to time. So my last question for Nadia is um, tied in. Why do you think there's? You said something interesting about technical documentation. Hmm. Yeah, I just thought of it as an example of. You know, people might disagree around sales and marketing, or like get kind of freaked out by those terms. But even documentation, I think of it as something that's um, it's not literally writing code, but it's extremely important just to help people communicate with each other, right? Um, and so it's kind of a technical and like acknowledged function in open source, but that doesn't always get enough love. I think it's also, I mean, uh, I'll say it up front: technical documentation never gets much love. Never does, yeah. And that, like, how do you get started with a new project? You read, right? This is why people hire people to write documentation. Yeah, because developers like to write code; they don't like to write documentation, and they don't have particularly good skill sets at it. So yeah. you need you need people who have that skill set. And next week we talk about continuous documentation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to give a, a huge thank you to our two guests. Um, this was yeah, you the guys first. Have been awesome. This thanks was for having us. This yeah, was the first so. time we had two guests. So any any final words? Go open source, support your favorite projects. (laughs) 
Yeah, what he said. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of Circle CI, and Edith Harbaugh of Launch Darkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Thank you.